Three, two, one, and we're back again with another episode of Cut Talk Podcast. Thank you to everybody who's been listening up to this point. I'm very excited for today's episode. We have a very special guest, somebody who actually I just met not too long ago, and somebody who, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll allow them to introduce themselves. Hi, everybody. Um, Shea, Crystal Carr, you know, Jeff, Sadish Gijin, Ashlento, Pinfa 20, Bashishin. Arizona State University, the English second year PhD student. Um, I am majoring in uh, justice studies. Uh, my name is Crystal Carr, and I am Rocket born for Deer Spring. My maternal clan is Mini Goats, and my paternal clan is of uh, the Tango people. I am Navajo, was born and raised on the Navajo Nation into the city of Arizona. I currently work as the Director of Legislative Affairs and Special Projects at Denai College which is also the first tribally controlled college in the world. And I also am a second year PhD student at Arizona State University, uh, studying justice studies under the School of uh, Social Transformation. And I'm also a CEO of a backpacking and hiking company, um, Navajo owned and uh, co-founded by myself and my business partner, and it's called Fulfillet Hiking Strong. Thank you for that introduction, Crystal. Uh, as she stated, she's the CEO of a company, so we'll have the link to her stuff below so you guys can check that out. Um, also, in the beginning there, for people who are just listening, they're probably not going to understand what you did. Can you just kind of explain, you know, what the introduction okay. is? Yeah, so in Navajo, it's respectful for us to introduce ourselves. Uh, in Navajo, traditionally, we did not introduce ourselves by our name, but we introduced each ourselves uh, through our clanship. And um, our four clans is what makes us who we are. And usually that's how others relate to us um, within these different clan groups. Um, and it helps us establish that that connection with others, um, other Navajos. And um, yeah, that's just respectfully how we introduce ourselves. And um, there is a taboo, traditional taboo on giving your name. Um, so traditionally we didn't give our names, but now today, obviously we have Western names or colonized names. So of course my name is Crystal Carr. Um, but with the Napo culture, we really didn't introduce each other by our names, but through our clanship. Amazing. So, I mean, that's very interesting. I, I also wanted to say, so you mentioned that there is a formal name, an, an introductory cultural name, and then there's the westernized name, like you said. So uh, can you give us a little history of that? Uh, just, I mean, as much as you know about how, how exactly because we have this in America, we have this tradition of ignoring cultures, ignoring the past, kind of looking at the start of the country as the, the date of independence to now. But there is a rich culture, rich history way before that. And, you know, uh, being from the being from the tribe of Navajo, uh, I'm sure you have heard a lot of stories passed down and you have 
maybe relatives who uh, have rich culture and rich history in terms of things like that. So can you explain that kind of how how uh, it all came to be? Sure, definitely. So uh, within our um, within our culture, when it, a baby is born, we usually are born in traditional hogans, and um, usually there is a uh, well. We I guess the best way to explain it is like a, a medicine woman or or an elder woman who is in there with you to help you birth the child. And sometimes um, in some situations, there's also a medicine man um, to bless you as and give you prayers as you're going through the childbirth. So when you are born, um, the the medicine man will usually be blessed with with your name. Um, and this is your your the name that is um, how the holy people actually identify you. And it can be used in certain ceremonies. And in some ways, it can be used to harm you. So that's why we don't share that name. But usually as a baby, that medicine man will whisper in your ear your name. And that's not, that's something that's not traditionally shared or, you know, shared. Um, but, but that's like what we used to do. Um, nowadays, it's not really done. Um, there are some families who still practice that. Uh, but it's not necessarily talked about and it's not something that you really share out there um and then through growing up your family also gives you names um so <laughs> they give you like nicknames or embarrassing nicknames sometimes for example my one of my um embarrassing nicknames in Navajo is a slant uh-huh because when I was little I used to be very um skinny and uh they used to be afraid of um, when it blew really hard that I would blow away in the wind. So um, uh-huh is like yeah, referring yeah. to like the flapping of a flag. Mm -hmm. So that's so they, they have names that describe you as you're growing up. But those are just nicknames. They're not your actual name. Yeah, um, that's very interesting. And I think a lot of people can relate to that, you know, um, in terms of endearment when it comes to family, you know, we have the tendency to give each other those nicknames and, you know, uh it always always comes from a place of love for the most part you know sometimes you get the even the cheeky ones the ones that are a little you know hard wholehearted it's they still come from a good place you know so i think it's beautiful that the culture embraces that and um just again i'm, I'm actually complete from a complete you know the, the perspective that i'm coming from is just somebody who doesn't know anything about anything so i'm just gonna ask from the beginning like uh let's say because a lot of the portrayal of native americans in certain cultures very like you know the guy who has like the wolf the wolf head on him you know and then have, <laughs> like the you know yeah. and then his name is like a sitting bull you know well sitting bull is a famous one but you know i think people tend to kind of like uh because of this the tight uh attachment to spirituality they tend to kind of look at it as a mystical culture which in a sense it is mystical because you know spirituality is a form of mysticism but at the same time it's very deeply rooted, you know, uh, in in the nature, in the ground, connection mm -hmm. to the earth. So, um, what do you think, or is is it is that a correct portrayal? I'm gonna assume it's not. You know, there's probably something deeper there. But, um, do you have any idea why, or do you have any maybe assumption why that tends to be the imagery associated versus you know how, how you're saying you know here, you know we're lucky enough to have a guest who's a Navajo. 
uh, woman. Do you identify as a woman? Yes, I got to ask those questions. You, you do identify <laughs> as a woman, correct? Yes, I do. Yes, okay. I just got to be uh, got to be respectful here. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you are a CEO of a company, you know, studying, PhD student, you know. I would say you're a part of a very underrepresented group and you, you fit a very specific demographic. So, uh, you know, it's a pleasure. But uh, again, do you, what do you think, where does that come from? You know, that, that I guess you could call it cliche kind of stereotype mm-hmm. of what a Native American is. Yeah, that's what we usually refer to as the romanticized version of Natives, Native Americans. Um, it's very um, mythical and um in some ways designated as uh idealistic so that could translate as to being made up so when um you know western nations came and they colonized this the americas they came with this notion that we weren't smart we weren't intelligent beings and therefore we were inferior. So a lot of the romanticized versions of us um, were fed this idealism that we were made up that we couldn't be true. And even today, that is still something that is, we're portrayed as through stereotypes. And um, because we didn't have the same understanding of the universe that lined up with uh, these Western beings. And the reason why I think people say that we're so spiritual, quote unquote, um, or mystical is because our worldview was based on things that you couldn't necessarily see. Uh, for example, our Dine worldview, our philosophy, our fundamental laws are based on natural laws, are based on uh, giving rights to the rivers, to the water, to the lakes, to the sky, understanding that these things are people too, in a way. They're, when we refer to um, the monsoons, we call them the thunder people. They're coming and rolling in and just that idealism that we call them people, that they have a uh, respective value other than just being a cloud, other than just being thunder, a sound, because you can't obviously see a sound. Um, You can't see that the river has um, a spirit. You can't see that a tree has a spirit, right? So these Western views um, more or less were like making fun of us um, in a way, and still today, they see us in that stereotypical, romanticized mindset. And um, I also see too often how um, they romanticize us without humanizing us, because they'll say, oh, I'm, I want to be a shaman. I'm a native shaman because I was taught this prayer. Or I'm burning sage because the natives burn sage and, you know, that this is to get rid of the bad spirits because I I was designated with this knowledge as well. Um, And they may think they're they're respecting um, our culture or respecting us by utilizing the practices that we use. But because they're not native themselves or because they don't understand the language themselves, they are 
in the worst way disrespecting us because they are doing this um this superficial practice because they think it's good but to understand how good it is to understand and to have that sacredness within some of these practices or within some of these views of the world, you have to be able to have a connection to the language because Navajo um, words and certain phrases cannot necessarily be limited by um, English translation. So, um, for example, what I mean by that is uh, you can take one word in Navajo, for example, my company thing, Hultzile, mm. has many meanings within English language, and it's limited because you cannot fully understand what Hultzile means unless you understand the language. Same goes for the prayers, same goes for the practices that are being romanticized in this sense of um, some of these people who are not Native. Uh, taking on these roles of shaman or trying to um, mix their astrology with native practices. I, I apologize, I went down a rabbit hole, but... No, no, perfect. This is what we love. This is what we do on this podcast. We like to talk and we like to ask questions for sure. So I, I did write down a couple of questions. First of all, I think that um, me personally, you know, I'm sure a lot of people can relate that there's always... There's always this uh, poeticness when you speak about giving soul to things that seem inanimate because we often have this. I mean, people have the tendency throughout history to destroy nature because of that disrespect for it. So we see no <laughs> consequence to what we do when we damage the earth, although the earth is essentially the, re the resource from which we came, from which we exist, from which we, uh, in other words, we need to take care of the earth not destroy it but due to uh various markets you know there's a lot of reasons right there's a lot of reasons political gain uh economic gain that people uh tend to outweigh the beauty of nature and the value of what it is and respecting life and we choose things like money we choose things like uh growth quote unquote whatever that means but uh yeah so you said that when you know, like people may try and em emulate the culture, but with bad intentions, again, romanticizing it in a way, not giving it its proper respect, not really understanding where it comes from. And uh, me personally, I'm a Mexican-American, so my parents come from a culture in Mexico where we also have the same sort of uh, the same sort of experience where you can see people you know putting on the mariachi hat and you know drinking mm -hmm. tequila and you know oh yeah or you know where this is this is mexico right here you know and romanticizing it when it really comes from a long line and uh that made me wonder so is there sort of an exclusivity to the culture of um i mean and then also before i asked that actually uh i was wondering because i know there's certain major tribes is that correct do you know all the major tribes is there certain ones or because uh, i honestly i don't know how the system of native american tribes works i know there's like Cher the more known ones like cherokee navajo uh you know just uh, <laughs> yeah definitely i can um, share some insight into that so mm -hmm. um there are 574 federally recognized 
tribes in the United States. Wow. Um, so I'm not sure if that's what you meant by major. Um, uh, some of the major, ones, major was the wrong word. Maybe like popular, you know, like when you, you know, in school. More commonly known. Commonly known, right. Like more, they're more prevalent, I guess. Like when you go to school, you, you're taught more about like the Cherokee tribes, the Comanches, the Navajos, you know, like there's certain tribes like that are more. Like tribes, yes. Right, right. Which is, that's why, you know, I don't mean to put any one above the other one, you know, it's just that from what I know in my experience of the public education system, that's what I learned. You know, I never yeah. really uh, dove any deeper than that, that, but 574 that is a lot. Is, uh, I think that that is uh, something that is <laughs> not people's fault. Um, yeah. And I appreciate you asking the question because it does provide uh, a space for those of us who do know and can explain it to help educate and provide that education. So um, when I said there's 574 federally recognized tribes, this is based on the notion that the federal government recognizes these tribes. However, there are also um, state recognized tribes who do not have that federal recognition. For example, there's some tribes in California that are state recognized, but they don't have that federal recognition. Uh, there are some tribes who are still fighting for that recognition today who still have their culture, who still have their language. So um, in a sense, um, they may not be um, more or less known or commonly known um, as opposed to us um, Navajo, because you know Navajos are one of the largest tribes. You often hear of the, the, the larger tribes because more often than not, they have that political pull within some of these states. They have that political pull with some of these political parties and within some of the, the wealth that they gain um, as tribes. Uh, I think you mentioned um, Cherokee. So the history goes that there are five, there were five civilized tribes, I believe Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, but they all start with, she, um, uh, with C, but they were, they were one of the first tribes, very first tribes that actually adopted Western concepts. Western governments. So that's why they were called civilized. And some of these tribes even owned slaves at the time because their location of where their lands were were primarily in the uh, southeast of the United States where slavery was pretty predominant at that time. Uh, so more or less, you probably um, more commonly learned about them rather than some of the tribes within California or even Alaska mm. or Hawaii. Yeah, and I think again that's that goes to show how there's a rich and hidden, in a sense, culture and history behind the country, you know, before the country rather. And uh, that's why I, that's why I was very interested in having this conversation because you ha you offer a lot of insight on that. And I mean, I've learned so much already, and I'm sure everybody has as well. So, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, so when you were saying that there's this you know romanticism of the culture is the attitude from within the tribe sort of and i know you see the thing is today people want to have this all-inclusive ideology which is like that's fine we can include mm -hmm. each other however there's a, also such thing as uh sacred the word sacred you know some things are sacred to certain cultures uh mm -hmm. you can't be let in just because you want to be in you know there's a sacredness to it and whether people want to call it gatekeeping or whatever, you know, there's that perspective. However, 
if people choose to have sacredness within their own cultures, then that's fine. And is that the attitude when it comes to the Navajo people that we keep our culture within? We, we don't allow outsiders in a sense. Um, I just want to maybe take that into a bird's eye view. And um, I, I do appreciate the question. I don't think there's any right answer to the question at this time, but I can explain uh, where I'm coming from. Um, and from a bird's eye view, the way I see it is um, when you talked about uh, gatekeeping or looking at um, being inclusive of everybody and welcoming everybody, I think this stems from a colonial thought process. Because if you look at the US Constitution, we have the freedom of religion, right? Within tribal nations, that is not a, a law or a philosophy that we necessarily stem from or have um, uh, traditionally practiced, if that makes sense. So I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. A Navajo tribal member cannot go to Hopi and do their snake dance, their ceremonial snake dance, and say, this is my way of living. This is the religion I want to practice. That reflects freedom of religion, right? Right. That is not appropriate. So um, in a sense, tribal nations do not have this freedom of religion concept traditionally. And I think um, in today's society, when you have like intermarriage between tribes and different cultures, uh, you find um, people who are in these mixed cultures, they don't really understand uh, what could be taboo for one tribe um, is good for another tribe. Um, so there's, there's a lot of um, cross wiring that happens there. Um, and I'm just giving examples to try to help um, provide context on where I'm coming from. So there is this greater notion that no, you cannot uh, be inclusive um, to non-tribal members. And yes, you know, many of us support that. Do not practice Navajo prayers if you're not Navajo. However, in some of our tribal um, family, sorry, not tribal family, uh, traditional families and within Navajo, we have actually adopted people from other tribes. We have adopted people who weren't born Navajo into our culture. And I think in those cases, yes, and I think it's welcome, it's fine. However, if you have someone who's on the outside, who's not welcomed, who's not adopted into the tribe culturally, then you know they have no business practicing Navajo prayers or Navajo culture. Um, same goes for, I think, for many of the other tribes. I can't speak for them, but um, I know of one tribe, I forgot what it was called, but in Washington, there's one tribe. If you, if you are not a tribal member um, of their tribe, but you actually marry someone who is an enrolled member of their tribe, and you, you live there within their community, and they adopt you within their culture, they will actually enroll you and recognize you as a citizen of their tribe based on their tribal laws. 
So there are certain situations where it's okay. And for the most part, if you have no business saying an Navajo prayer, or if you have no business burning sage, then don't do it. It's just right and i think actually uh just me personally my opinion is that that's the reason that the culture is so well preserved and so uh really it's so rich because uh you know there is a history of people coming and uh uh causing harm to tribes you know outsiders in a sense you know and not just Mm -hmm. native american tribes but this is seen all around the world people who come from the outside with no respect to the inside the fundamental laws of what it what the group what the group's um beliefs are and therefore it becomes a disregard so in a sense a person from the outside can never really truly be from the group even though they could may claim the label because there's a sense of you really don't have it in your soul necessarily you know and that's not a bad thing or at least i wouldn't say that's a bad thing you know again it keeps the tradition rich and um there's mm-hmm. a lot of uh there's a lot of uh, appreciation that can be done. You don't necessarily need to infiltrate the culture to appreciate it from the outside, you know, or just to admire it. So that's beautiful. And um, yeah, so thank and I, you. I, I do want to um, touch on that uh, really quick. You did remind me of something, the gatekeeping part. There are some uh, tribal members that we do have within Navajo who are trying to reconnect. They are Navajo, maybe they're they're half Navajo or they're a quarter Navajo or they're one eighth Navajo, not enough to be considered a tribally uh, enrolled member. However, you know, let's say their great grandma was Navajo. They, and they have that clan um, when they introduce themselves. So there are those who are reconnecting back to the culture who, um, who are faced sometimes with this gatekeeping of this, um, excluding others from learning different um, cultural significance or um, even in learning the Navajo language. However, you know, and and sorry, they also, they also make this argument that some people are gatekeepers because you are not accepting of us because it wasn't our fault that we were disconnected from our people. But two, on the other side, there are resources like Dinette College like Navajo Technical University that actually teach the Navajo language, teach the culture. And within Diné College, there are certain classes where you can actually learn um, some of the songs and prayers um, of Hojonje or Blessing Way ceremonies. And those resources are available to some of these reconnecting Navajos. So I see, you know, there, there are some who would say um, traditional cultural Navajo members, you know, elders are being gatekeepers, but in a sense, you know, not necessarily because there are resources out there for those who are still reconnecting. And, you know, I think um, I just too want to encourage those who are on the other side of the table of that argument and those who are on the other side of trying to be a part of the inclusive um, community that we have internally, um, it does take time and it does take respect from um, both sides. And like you said, it does stem from others coming in and us being so willing to share back then, but have been burned by um, mis deception. We have been burned by misinformation and misinterpretation. 
And that is why some people are so protective of the culture and the teachings. And that's why some of us are so <laughs> readily, um, uh, readily angry to stand at um, that gatekeeping um, role because uh, we want to protect our language, we want to protect our culture, um, but to make it available for those who do have a right to that. And uh, I, so I've heard you say a couple of times, uh, leaders. So is there like some sort of a hierarchy system within the Navajo tribe? Is there rankings uh, per se, just, just to give it a word, but uh, I don't mm -hmm. know if that's the right word, but is there, mm -hmm. you said there's leaders, you know, are there people that are recognized as more like of leadership roles or, I mean, how, how does it work exactly? Uh, I think the easy answer is the women are the leaders. We are the boss. Um, but, um, <laughs> and I'm just saying that jokingly, <laughs> but you know, I'm serious of... at the same time. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, um, I guess more in depth is that we have communities across the whole Navajo Nation. There's 110 chapters that were traditionally designated as districts based on these small bands that spanned out, you know, over the, the 150 years since the treaty was signed. So they have formulated into the, what we call chapters. They're, they're seen as local governments today. And each one has their own designated leaders. And usually these designated, not designated, um, elected leaders are usually people who have grown up, who have a longstanding um, uh, relationship with the community and maybe have had families who have been there for generations on end. So um, in a sense, yes, we do have kind of like a class or a ranking system um, in that regard. Uh, we also have uh, medicine men and uh, certain traditional knowledge holders that are held in high regard. However, it's like an unwritten, unspoken rule um, to respect these elders who have that uh, traditional um, teaching. And even it, it can go down to um, as simple as having a family ranking system. So within family, Navajo families, usually the, the female is the boss. Like in my family, my mom's the boss, like her husband, like almost anybody doesn't listen to him. Uh, yeah, yeah. If my mom says it goes, it goes. You know, if my mom says no, it's no. And um, that's how it is in my family. And there are some families who have been affected by uh, colonialism and actually run um, more or less on patriarchy where males are the leaders within their family. So you have this, um, this, this collection of people who have um, this idea of, what a leader should be within their communities and within their own families. And we're kind of just all mixed together. So in a sense, yes. And in a, in another sense, no. Fascinating. And I think there's a, it's funny that we have, a, you know, in, in Mexican households, we have some, some similarities to that, you know, even though there's this stigma of like, machismo behavior you know a lot of the times it does come down to what the, what the mother figure says you know because uh for various reasons you know but um mm -hmm. hey we have enough uh patriarchy there's nothing wrong with the matriarchy and i think uh 
I, I think it's fascinating how you how you spoke about how there's a big focus, especially on birth. You know, earlier how you were saying that it, it seems like there's some a ceremony, you know, when it comes to birth, you know, not not more like just being in a hospital, having a baby, but being surrounded by uh, people who are giving this energy into this, you know, beautiful thing, which is a human birth. And uh, can, can you speak to is there some sort of uh, spiritual connection or some deeper meaning to birth in the culture of Navajo is it is it because you know we have uh recently there's been and we're, we're not going to get too controversial or nothing but you know the conversation of abortions and everything you know and uh that's a <laughs> whole nother topic but you know that it just shows how in, in certain cultures there's no there's uh, less of a respect for life but it seems that based off what I've heard that in the Navajo uh, culture the the birthing of life is a very big deal and it's uh treated as such so can you speak a little bit about that uh that ceremony it seems like Mm -hmm. uh sure um so just to share i have not personally gone through this like i've never been pregnant or birthed a child however from um my understanding which is very limited let me give you that it's very limited in this um in in what prayers and what stories usually go with this but to my understanding from hearing um, certain teachings that go with it, um, again, very limited. There are um, the notion of where you conceive to where you give birth. The mother is expected to think good thoughts, is expected to be a good person and be in a sense revenant in nature throughout her whole pregnancy as to not affect um, her child in any negative way. So a high responsibility is given to Navajo women, especially pregnant Navajo women, because they have to be able to be patient. They have to be able not to easily go into anger or to go into you know being upset easily or keeping away from certain energies or certain practices Um, while they're pregnant um, in order to protect their child. So this translates to the birth of the child as well. So usually within a ceremony um, of a birth, I I wouldn't necessarily, it's it's like designated that there's such a official ceremony, but in a sense, it is a ceremony because prayer is given to protect the mother and the child while they're while the child is being born because this um represents where um almost like two souls are separating so the soul of the child is within the mother who has the soul you know spiritually so when she births the child it's a very um it's seen as kind of like a very um vulnerable in the moment uh, spiritually so when the child comes out um you know, and it has its own spirit, its own soul, that that process um, has to be protected. And it's usually protected by certain prayers um, and certain thoughts uh, that is given by, you know, surrounding family members who are there in the Hogan helping the, the mother. So they themselves have to be revenant. They themselves have to think positive things while the child is being born. And they themselves cannot be easily angered or impatient with the mother or, you know, bring any negative energy into the Hogan. 
Um, so that's the best way I can explain it um, to, and it's a very limited understanding, um, but you know, that's, that's just, I don't think I've been afforded any of those stories because I've never gone through it. I've never been pregnant. It's never been a purpose for me to know those stories yet. Yeah, it's interesting how you said, you know, even though you wouldn't, whether or not you want to consider it a ceremony, in a sense, all birth is ceremonial, you know, because like mm -hmm. you said, uh, whether symbolic or f literally physically, two bodies are being separated, two souls are being separated in a sense. So there is that sort of uh, poeticness to it, you know, that uh, where it's like life coming to be, you know. And it's, mm -hmm. is, there a, is there some... Uh, in the culture of Navajo, is there some uh, sort of understanding of consciousness? Because this consciousness is something that I particularly uh, find a lot of interest in, a lot of conscious studies, you know, uh, mm. figuring out what it means to be alive. Is there some understanding uh, in the culture to what exactly that means? Or or is, is life represented by some force? Or how, how is it seen? consciousness that's a very deep question and honestly i don't think i fully understand the question um but i can do my best to answer what i think you mean um in other words uh is 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 there like some word for consciousness does it is there something that can be described that that describes consciousness in other words consciousness uh let's see Or how I about like this? Is is life perceived as an experience, or more as a as a duty? Is it like are you living for a purpose, or is life just a ride? Hmm. Do you know? I mean, I, I I I'm just asking a random question, so that that question could fall completely flat. It's just I'm I'm wondering if there's because there's so much connection to the earth itself. I wonder is there a feeling that humans are an extent like are we plugged directly into the earth or are we some spiritual force that comes in and oh like do we have a fate or free so, will yeah i guess that yeah. could be fate if fate is how they describe it yes then that fate would be the answer but that's okay. what i'm asking is, is like is it a fate driven like oh you're born with a destiny mm -hmm. predestined map of how your life is going to go or is there some idea that you control the experience hmm uh, what I could do is uh, give a, a brief a brief explanation of how we view the universe. It may or may not answer your question. So the way uh, I was taught and the way um, you know, pulling in these teachings from traditional knowledge holders as well as um, understanding and learning the language myself. And I think that when we, we as Navajo, when we, when we were designated and prepared for this place uh, within the four sacred mountains, we say it was made for us by the holy people. And our universe is centered around that. Our thought process is centered around that. And our, um, you know, our healing process, our mental stability, everyday tasks can be explained by justice, 
university universe of understanding. So what I'm referring to is what we commonly call which is describing a philosophy that uh, the Navajo philosophy. So within the four sacred mountains, um, we are called by the, the holy people, the, the perfect ones. Uh, um, we are called many different things, um, the children of the holy people. The is, is something we say, um, which is the five-fingered beings. And so there are many ways we, we, um, we refer to ourselves based on what thought process we are gearing toward um, and what purpose we're thinking toward. So, for example, in certain ceremonies, we go through this uh, thought process of Sogan and we sing the songs from the, the eastern mountain to the southern mountain to the west to the north back to east. And we always start with the east. And within the Sogan philosophy, we have Nsahakes, which is represented with the east, which is planning, which is represented to the south. also derives um, to another word, which means not ani, um, which translates um, more commonly to leader within our language. We have the Western mountain, which is ina, ina. The common translation of that is life or action. And then sihasin, um, to the north. And that is reflection. It also means hope, looking back and correcting the thing, the process that we went through and then going through the cycle again. It's the constant um, uh, cycle of thought. Uh, it's the constant uh, cycle of, uh, of understanding the world and how the our universe works. So when we call ourselves the perfect ones or the um, children of the holy people, we have that purpose to take care of the land that um, we are given. We have that purpose to also... Um, walk by a certain set of values and rules that has been taught to us and has been given to us by the holy people. And um, within certain people, you recognize they have a certain vessel or a certain channel to uh, spiritual things. So maybe someone is destined to be a medicine man because they have possess um, you know, the, the, maybe it's easy for them to, to uh, understand the prayers or it's easy for them to um, not necessarily memorize the prayers, but be, uh, it's easy for them to conduct the ceremony as it would others. Um, and there's a, there are certain medicine men who specialize in certain ceremonies. So, so that, that um, idea of free will um, is there because you can choose whether or not you want to continue on that path. We do have people who we call um, crystal gazers. Uh, so this more or less, I'm just speaking in traditional terms where um, it could be a woman who is a crystal gazer and or a hand trembler and they can di 
not necessarily diagnosed, but they can see certain things um, that are harming your life or help solve problems that are affecting your life. So those ones are, um, in a sense, predetermined, but you have the free will whether or not you want to continue on that path or not. Um, just trying to keep in line with your question. Uh, but I think that giving the overall view of how we view the universe, we do, we do have this sense that we are supposed to take care of the land that we are on and we belong to it. Not that it belongs to us, but we belong to it. However, because of colonialism and Western thought processes, and because we're in a capitalist society, we have to make ends meet and we go right. where the jobs are. And so we have many Navajos who actually live off the reservation who don't fall in line with some of those teachings. Yeah, so in a sense, they have yeah. that free will. Thank yeah. you. I mean, the question itself was very complicated, so it warranted a complicated answer, but I think you answered <laughs> it very well and even answered questions that I would have had. So, uh, I mean, I'm just fascinated by the complexity, not only of the language, but of the culture itself. And, you know, the more time, the more this conversation goes, the more I'm, I'm glad we're having it, as I'm sure is the audience. And uh, uh, I just, because in a lot of, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, looked at older uh, history, text, languages, and it seems that in a lot of ancient languages, there's this, there's this inability to translate correctly or there's multiple translations the way that you're saying that one word or the concept of one word doesn't hold true the phrase represents a multitude of things the phrase itself is the power not not what the meaning is necessarily it's the it's the collapse the derivation of all this into one phrase you know and i think um because uh the culture which we have of the English language where in a sense it's one of the most simple languages in a lot of ways because you when you go to for example somewhere like Japan or somewhere like India where they these words will say something like oh how do you say cat how do you say dog and it's like it's not mm -hmm. even the fact of saying the word it's what the idea is behind the word and I and I see that that's true uh, in a sense to the Navajo language of trying to encapsulate the idea, maybe the emotion through the mm -hmm. word. And even I notice in some of your pronunciations, it seems that the pronunciation comes along with the word itself to where when you say it, you have to say it in a certain uh, tone or with a certain inflection so that you can cap capture what the meaning of the word is. And it's just mm -hmm. fascinating to me, the complexity of the language, the complexity of the culture and uh I appreciate you answering all the questions about the culture. And I have more, but, I mean, maybe we'll have a future conversation. I wanted to ask, mm -hmm. switch over a little bit to your, actually, your studies. So, um, you said your academic journey, you know. So, you said you're a PhD student in Justice Studies, correct? Am I getting that right? Yes, correct. And what would you say uh, gravitated you towards that field of study? Was it something that you went through personally? Is it something that you got into school and... Uh, you noticed that the push in that direction was a little easier. There was less resistance. Like you said, uh, you know, just to connect it to what you're saying, you know, did you see that you were maybe made for that in a way? Like, okay, I'm understanding this better than I feel like other people are. This comes to me when I see these ideas, when I read these texts, it makes a lot of sense. Is that what it was or what kind of like gravitated you mm -hmm. towards that field of study? I have a very simple answer for that. 
I did not know what justice studies was when I went into, when I signed up for this program, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea uh, what it entailed. However, I am glad I signed up for it because I know what it is now. And uh, actually, it, it relates to a lot of um, the purpose I want for myself and the purpose I want to serve for my people. And I believe this degree in this program will really, really help me um, hone that in on um, through academic research, as well as um, adding that to the years of practice that I have in working with tribal government and working with tribal law and policy. Um, I think that putting those two together will really help me um, be in a position to help make decisions for my people later on that will truly benefit them, that will plan for the future and sustain our way of life. Um, so simple answer, I had no idea what justice studies was. It was uh, it was introduced to me by uh, my employer who offered to pay for uh, me to get this degree. There was there's myself and five others who work here, um, who were um, I guess approached to see if they wanted to pursue a PhD program. And I'm just very fortunate to have an employer that is paying for my education, let alone a PhD program. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the basic story. Yeah, that's. I think a lot of people can relate to that, and especially the audience that uh, we have. And our as our audience grows, I know a lot of people are uh, maybe thinking of or currently in the process of higher education and uh, going for degrees and things like that. Um, and I just wanted to ask for those that may be listening who don't, because I know myself personally when I was in college, and I'm still in college, but and I still have the same <laughs> problem where this undecisiveness, where it's like, where you're afraid of commitment, you're scared to commit to uh, one thing, not because you don't know what you want to do, but be, or not because you don't want to do something, but because you don't know what you want to do. So it's harder <laughs> to make a, a choice, it seems, for the rest of your life when you don't really know what you want even tomorrow. So uh, can you kind of explain how the process is or how it was for you in terms of starting your education and then uh, the steps of a PhD program and kind of how one eventually gets their PhD, if you can just explain <laughs> the process for those. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, your question, I think, was a general one in pertaining to why I'm pursuing education or or. Um, got in the path of uh, pursuing higher uh, educational degrees. Um, <clears throat> I think that in my life, I have always been taught to pray. Almost anything to help me in my decis indecisiveness um, or even something where I didn't feel right in some situation or I didn't feel right in making a choice. I was always taught to um rely on that foundation of prayer and my mother taught me this a lot and um so in growing up and understanding how I ended up in certain situations from my point of view I was put there for a purpose so in acting upon why I am taking you know pursuing a degree in justice studies and in my mindset I'm thinking this was meant to be so in a sense, in those indecisive moments, um, I just encourage, you know, if, if you're in that place, maybe all you need to do is pray. <laughs> and um, 
the way I started my higher education, I, and honestly, in high school, I was not planning to go to college. I didn't know I was as smart as I was. Um, in growing up in a, on the reservation, um, at times growing up with no running water or electricity, uh, being in a Western um, schooling system, I was not always the smartest one. Um, in middle school, I was put in special ed programs. Uh, in kindergarten, because I didn't speak very much, they thought I was slow um, in a sense. So growing up, um, I think for a lot of Native students, this is how they're perceived because at home, like within our culture, we're not always taught to like speak up or, you know, to say things in class um, or speak when an adult is speaking, right? So that within our culture, I think has some, um, uh, in some cases, has some influence on that and why sometimes Native students don't really speak up in class or they're, they're more reserved in class settings. So, um, you know, it, it did give this notion that I was slow and <laughs> I was put in special ed. And even in high school, I was discouraged from applying for mm. scholarships or even going to college. It was my mother that actually, she, she gave me this ultimatum and, you know, Navajo moms can be mean as, and <laughs> you compared this to, to Mexican moms, right? Mm. Is that the proper way to say it? But, um, yeah. If you, if you, um, like I said, anything that my mom said went right. It, and I respect her for that. Like it was, it was like her way or the highway. Right. So when she gave me this ultimatum, when I graduated high school, that following, I graduated on a Saturday and then that following Sunday, the next day she goes, are you going to, are you going to college or what are you going to do now? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I, I'll just work as a waitress. And at that time I, I was working, I was, I had a job lined up at a local restaurant and she was like, no, <laughs> you're not going to work. You either go to college or you move out. And I was like, what? And so it was just like this ultimatum and she, and the next day, and I was like, well, I guess I'll go to college then since, you know, I don't have anywhere to go. So the next morning, Monday morning, she drove me to um, the tribal college that we had there in the city and enrolled me in college. And she enrolled me in the first two, she paid for my first two classes. And that's how I started my college journey. And I was like, mom, if you just asked me to go to college, I would have gone. You didn't have to, mm -hmm. you know, create an ultimatum right then and there. Like yeah. if you just asked me, I would have gone. And, and now to this day, I'm pursuing my, um, my PhD program. And I think that um, one uh, advice I would offer to those who are thinking about a PhD program is to, to try to have an idea of what your dissertation is going to be, or um, an idea of what you want to research um, prior to going into the program, because that will dictate which program you will pursue um, also think about whether or not you would like to go through a traditional PhD program 
or um the one I'm in is is kind of like an accelerated one where you do um this more or less uh contemporary type um dissertation um program and I believe it's uh these you do like a lit review you do a a journal article you do a policy paper um what was the other one but there's five different things that that go into your um to your uh, dissertation in the contemporary one for the traditional one if you want to do the traditional one that one's usually for people who want to teach in academics so let's say you want to pursue a phd and actually become an academic and you want to teach classes at the higher education level um, or what have you, community college level, um, I would encourage you to, to go the traditional PhD route. However, if you're someone like me who doesn't want to teach, um, the other way is um, more proper and I think would benefit you more because you'll be doing a policy paper. That could be a way for you to understand how policies are um, created and developed. So when you are working with an organization, all organizations more or less run and they're most they're mostly based on how uh, the policies and procedures um, have a set of guidelines and rules that run your organization and make it su successful. Yeah, thank you for that story. That's an amazing story. And I'm sure a lot of people can gain inspiration and, and motivation from that. You know, like you said, from being thinking you weren't going to go to college and essentially getting ready to just be a waiter and now you're a PhD student. I think that's very inspirational and congratulations to you for that. Um, so, uh, so I was going to ask actually what, because the question, I mean, I guess I had worded it incorrectly, but yeah, I was basically asking like the one, the steps, you know, like how does, so you you mentioned an accelerated PhD program, which even I'm learning because I wasn't aware of this. So is it something that you apply for? Because I, I've, I've heard stories of PhD programs where essentially you have to apply to even get into the program in the first place. Uh, mm -hmm. Was this a program where you kind of, you, you already had the opportunity to do it or did you have to apply for the program? I, I know you mentioned that your employer paid for it. So was it something that's, that they had some access to? Uh, so yeah, um, to answer your first question, yes, I did have to apply to the program. Uh, I had to go through all the, the steps of um, creating a, a personal statement, making sure that I had a master's degree, that I was eligible to pursue a PhD program from Arizona State University. Um, before, um, my, although my employer said that they would um, pay for it, we ultimately had to be accepted first. So all of the ones who applied, I don't believe all of us were accepted, but of the pool that applied, five of us were accepted. And this um, PhD accelerator program, the reason why I call it accelerated is because it is a, um, it's based on a cohort um, that was designated by my employer to, um, for ASU to design this program specifically um, to for this group for this cohort, so that's why it's accelerated, and that's why the classes are catered to us. No one else in no other ASU student who is not a part of our cohort can attend the classes that we attend, because they are they are geared to um, 
to get us through the program. Uh, for example, over the summer, I took uh, two classes. They were each about four weeks long. And traditionally within um, PhD programs, if you just enter in without entering into like a special cohort like I did, um, more or less your, your classes will be based on the semester timeline. Uh, as for me, um, the the classes are seven to eight weeks long. There are there was one instance where we had one class that was one full week. We had to sit in class for forty hours, eight hours a day, four or five days straight, and they fit all of the materials into that one PhD class. It was intense, but um, luckily I passed, and it was it was actually a great experience and. Um, as we continue on, we actually have one more um, one week, one week class uh, next semester. So I am not looking forward to that because I don't get a break. Um, it's just constant go, go, go until you finish all the the required courses. Uh, but but yes, I I had to go through the acceptance process, uh, just like any other student had to. That's interesting. So for anybody listening who's maybe considering what career to get into or, you know, trying to find a, a home in terms of where they're going to work, maybe look into possible programs that your potential employer might have in terms of getting you through school. I know sometimes people think that when you're at work, you can't go to school. So, you know, if you can find mm -hmm. a situation where your job is willing to work with you and even, you know, in Crystal's case, help you get through your education and, you know, it's all about finding the right place. You know, I, I always tell people that it's, it, everything isn't obvious right away, but you, sometimes you got to dig a little deeper to get to what you need, especially when you know what you want or you have an idea of you of what you want and you're being more specific, then you really do have to do your due diligence to find something that accommodates to what you want to what you want to do. So, uh, yeah, so let's so getting into the cause we're already past an hour here and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh i want to just get into some final thoughts just some last general questions that um you know it's just some wisdom that you could share to the audience uh so i just got a list of questions here about 10 questions uh we could as fast as short or as complicated as you want to go it's up to you uh so what inspires you to do what you do what is your inspiration daily motivation or just what drives you what drives me um, to pursue a degree, to start my own company, to do the work that I do is our Navajo youth. I want to create a better world for my nieces and nephews. I want to create a better world for those youth, Navajo youth who are to come, who aren't even born yet. Um, for example, my grandchildren's grandchildren. Um, I think that many of us have that same mindset. Many Native people across the globe have that mindset to come back to help their people. And I think it's just natural to, um, to have that be your purpose and be your inspiration. It's very noble. Uh, do you have any advice for others who may be in your position or just in general? Any general life advice that you have? Advice pray if you don't if you do not have that foundation of prayer learn it it's it, it's something that is not hard but um at the same time it can take 
your full strength to learn and uh, can be very tiresome at some time. But um, any advice across the board is just to pray and to trust um, in what you're praying to. Uh, do you have any quotes uh, or sayings that you live by or that compel you? We have one common uh, phrase that we use within Navajo, and um, it's sometimes it's overutilized, but I think it really speaks to um, some one's motivation and one's uh, path and passion to keep going, which is which commonly translates to just do it. Yeah, just do it. It's simple as that. Um, can you share the first time that you felt that you accomplished something? The f your f earliest memory of accomplishment where you felt like maybe you set a goal for the first time that you actually achieved or maybe your graduation or getting into college. What was the first time that you felt accomplished? <laughs> uh, I think one memory that popped in my head um, when you said that, the earliest memory, uh, I had this doll who had um, purple yarn hair, and I asked my mom to teach me how to braid, but she just never had the time, you know, doing housework and stuff, and I was maybe uh, six years old, and I really wanted to learn how to braid, so what I did was I took my doll and I learned how to braid and I taught myself how to braid my doll's hair. Actually, I French braided my doll's hair at that time. So that, I, that is my earliest memory of accomplishment. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. I think, I don't think a lot of people, uh, you know, really feel accomplishment at that young and age, young of an age, but it's, it's fascinating that you were able to, you know, kind of just figure it out yourself. You know, that's, that's a, that's also a good lesson for people. Figure it out yourself, you know, they, even though you have no knowledge, you do have the potential and you have arms and you have a brain. So use them, you know, and mm -hmm. just like Crystal did. She learned how to braid. Uh, uh, so how would you say your experience in life has affected the way you maneuver in terms of are there, uh, of course, without getting too personal, are there any things in your life that maybe lessons that you learn like one day you learned a lesson that kind of changed you as a person or you heard something that changed it how has your life experience affected the way you maneuver through life i'd say one um pivotal moment in my life that has changed me ever since is when my dad died uh he died when i was a sophomore in high school um my dad and i were uh very close uh, he taught me um, how to, he actually, the passion of hiking came from him and uh, we would horseback ride a lot and he taught me a lot of um, different things and taught me Navajo. Um, that's where I built my vocabulary in Navajo was from him and um, yeah, when he passed away, I had to grow up fast because I, I was the eldest daughter and as you may know, Navajo culture is matrilineal. So it's the, it's the daughter, the eldest daughter is the one that takes the head next after the mother. So I had to grow up quickly and I had two younger siblings that I had to help my mom raise. And um, yeah, so, and my mom was unemployed. So we did, 
I didn't grow up with much. Um, yeah, we just arrived on social security checks when I was at that age. So I had to grow up really fast and try to help my mom with, with certain things. Truly inspirational and may your father rest peacefully. Um, what do you love? I love hiking, that's for sure. Um, I love spending time with my family. I think that the pandemic has really um, made this <laughs> more, um, I guess, uh, how would you say, uh, more relevant. Uh, I feel that each time and each passing day that I spend without them is is time lost because it, it seems more valuable to spend time with them because of so many people and family members that we lost during COVID, uh, especially here on the Navajo Nation, which has been one of the um, most impacted nations um, in the world by COVID. Um, we were losing traditional elders left and right, family members dying off because you know we don't have a good hospital system here. And the, the, some of the hospitals that were deemed to actually treat us or equipped to actually treat us were four hours away. And um, we, we lost so many family members. Um, my mom lost her two older um, sisters and she lost her older brother. We lost so many family members. And I think the time that I have today with the family members that I do have left is something that I, I really love and cherish. And the final question, <laughs> uh, what are you afraid of? Some people, you know, it's a simple answer, like spiders, like snakes, you know, some people are afraid of mm -hmm. death. Some people are afraid of inadequacy. There you go, I got it. <laughs> yeah, but. What I have trouble with English of? words too, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'd be surprised. Um, let's see, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of failing in the purpose that uh, I made for myself. Um, my dissertation's around land policy because I want to be able to help provide solutions to that so that way more people, more of my people can have opportunities to have their homestead here on Napa Nation. I think that I am afraid of failure um, for the most part. I'm not afraid of snakes or death. Oh, I'm afraid of fish, if, if that counts. Um, only because of one experience when I was little. But um, yeah, you don't hear that often. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, I get made fun of a lot for that. But um, like, some of the scarier things in life that scare most people don't scare me or make me afraid because I think I rely a lot on my um my spiritual wellness, my my prayers and stuff. So um failure awesome, I think for awesome. me is is the one thing I fear the most. Yeah. All right. And with that being said, uh that was a very interesting conversation. Again, I wanna say thank you to Crystal. Crystal Carr, uh, what was your, do you want to share your social media so people can contact you? Maybe if oh, they have a question yeah, if they want yeah. to talk to you. So uh, my hiking company, you can find us on 
Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram, as well as TikTok at Hiking Strong. So it's at Hiking Strong is, is the tag for that. Okay, at Hiking Strong. Uh, go and support, show love. You know, like I said, you might have some people with questions. So, you know, just be ready for that. Uh, again, thank you to Crystal. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for sharing and educating us and giving us a new perspective that we haven't had before um again hopefully maybe in the future we'll do another episode or something like that but for now we appreciate it and as for the audience everybody you already know how it goes on the bottom left we have the social tag at in the cut global that's on twitter instagram youtube uh and tiktok as well please like please subscribe thank you to everybody who's been supporting so far share a comment if you will uh, if you have anything to say about the conversation, any suggestions for future guests or future conversations are always welcome. Uh, appreciate everybody listening. Take care and peace.